Well, good evening, everybody. Nice to see you here this evening. I want to welcome you to this, uh, what I think is a really special evening. Uh, some, for some of you, this may be your first time here at Sherwood Oaks, and if that's the case, uh, we're thrilled to death that you're here. Um, some of you may have come at the invitation of a friend. Some of you may hear, be here because you uh, are dealing with some struggles or doubts or skepticism in your own faith, and uh, you heard about this from a friend um, or, or read about it in the paper or, or heard about it in some form or fashion. We're, we're really glad that you've come. And so we want to make sure that this evening, the questions that you have are our top priority. So let, let me just set a, a couple little ground rules for our evening together. Uh, this is not uh, a Bible trivia night, okay? This is not stump the chump uh, in, in the hopes that you can give Mark some really intricate question about the Bible that, you know, you think uh, he won't know this. That, that's not our purpose. Tonight is a part of our Room for Doubt series, and our goal is to address the questions and the doubts that are holding people back spiritually, all right? Uh, you, if, if you're a strong Christian, you probably know somebody, maybe somebody even in your family, close friend, who is really struggling with issues of doubt, and maybe they're asking you questions that you're struggling on knowing how to, to answer. And so those are the kinds of things that um, uh, we really want to address tonight. And because many of our guests this evening may have come with those type of questions, we want to make those our top priority. Um, if, if you're on a spiritual journey and you're not sure where that journey is going to land, we hope that we can help you do that this evening. All right. So, uh, and by the way, you, the questions that you all submitted are outstanding questions. And um, there's a whole list. As a matter of fact, if we went through the whole list tonight, uh, well, we'd be, we'd be here past midnight. Uh, even if we only spend a minute or two on each of those questions. And so what we'll try to do over the weeks to come is figure out ways that we can answer those questions or address some of those concerns because they're really outstanding questions and, and we don't want to let those go by. Uh, tonight we're going to begin with a little bit of an exercise that I hope will help you uh, and us and get Mark ready for what's going to happen here in just a little bit. And uh, that is that we'll be uh, moving into some small groups here in just a couple moments. Before we do that, uh, let me reintroduce Mark for those of you who weren't here or haven't met him. Uh, Mark Middleberg uh, uh, is, is at the top of the list when it comes to apologetic information. Uh, he spent 15 years on staff as evangelism minister at Willow Creek Community Church up in the Chicagoland area. For the last 30 years, he's been writing and speaking across the country and uh, around the globe, uh, dealing with these whole issues of doubt and struggle. And, and this is really kind of his forte, the question and answer kind of session tonight. And he did a great job with the message this morning. I know he's going to do a great job with your questions uh, this evening. And so I want you in a few moments to give him a warm welcome again. But here's the icebreaker, all right? We want you to kind of get together in groups of six or eight people around you, all right? Just wait until I'm done with these instructions and then we'll go from there. Here's the things you're going to do. Real quickly, all right? Just share your name, where you live and work uh, here in the area, uh, and then uh, share where you are on the Christianity scale. All right. Now, this is not testimony time. All right. I don't want you to go through your whole history. I just, you're just going to assign a number. All right. So zero being atheist, 10 being second only to Jesus Christ. Okay. 
This is on the scale of faith. So, one to four is that you believe in something, but you're not really sure Christianity is it. Six to nine is that you're a growing Christian in your faith. So somewhere in that range, five is where you have just tipped the scale and you have become a believer and you're just starting this journey. So zero to four, believe in something, not sure what it is. Six to nine, you're a Christian and you're growing at some level on that scale. Five is you've Flip to the other side. You have become a believer. Ten, if we get any tens in here, I'll need to talk to you after the service this evening, all right? So, um, after you introduce yourself, tell where you land on the scale. Now, we're going to start moving into the main point of tonight. If you could ask, here's what we want you to do in this group, and that is if you could ask God one question and you knew he would give you an answer, what would that question be? And if there is somebody in your group that is a skeptic, someone who has come tonight with questions, because they're, they're, not, they're in that one to four range, we want that question to dominate, all right? So, um, Gary, have I forgotten anything? Okay, all right. So just take a few minutes, huddle up together, find six to eight people close to you, turn around in the pew or move a little bit so that you can get with some folks and take just a few minutes. I'll call you back real quick. We have a three-minute timer on you, all right, so don't go long.
Your three minutes are up on name, work, and your scale. So now you're going to talk about the question. We're going to give you three minutes as a team to talk about the question you would like. If you had the opportunity to ask God one question, what would it be? Go. Three minutes to do that one. You've got about 30 seconds left, and while you're identifying the question, identify the spokesman for your team who's going to ask that question to our team. Pick the person who is lowest on the scale as the person to ask the question. Time is up. Do your best with that. Now, we have four highly skilled people that will be roaming through the audience here over the next few minutes trying to collect your questions. We have uh, Gary Poole. We have John Tweedy. We have Sean Green. We have three highly qualified people. Number four is Tim Thompson. So <laughs> just teasing, Tim. 
So they'll be roaming around trying to get your questions. Mark's going to introduce what we're going to do. By that time, we should have some questions ready to go. And some of the questions that you submitted, we will use throughout the evening as well. Will you join me in welcoming, once again, Mark Middleberg? Thank you. Well, thanks for coming back tonight if you were here this morning. And if you weren't, we're glad you came to be with us. Um, in just a couple minutes, I'm going to start with some of the questions that you've just collected in your little subgroup. But I thought I would begin with a true story from my uh, life. Uh, it was soon after I started in ministry. I was in Chicago at Willow Creek. Uh, as uh, Tom said, I was head of evangelism at the church. Uh, in fact, I was the first director of evangelism at the church, and then later I went and worked for the Willow Creek Association that does the Global Leadership Summit that I know you host here at the church. And then my replacement, the guy I had hired to take over for me, uh, is Gary Poole, who's the guy over there with the mic. So Gary and I go way back in ministry. But during that time, uh, it was a exciting, busy place to be. I don't know if you know the church. It's a church that now is like 25,000 people. Uh, it has its own zip code, I think. Um, but it was a busy place, lots of activity, lots of events, lots of conferences, and lots of questions because we were reaching into the community. So, you know, routinely people would call, the receptionist would say, oh, you have a spiritual question here, talk to Mark. Well, one day, apparently this young man called asking for me by name. And uh, so she put me through. She said, there's a high school student on the phone that wants to talk to you. And I said, okay, great. Put, put him through. And I answered the phone. I said, this is Mark Middleberg. He said, hi, th thanks for taking my call. He said, the reason I'm calling, and this, this stuck with me forever. He said, the reason I'm calling is because I used to be a Christian. I said, okay, you got my attention. Uh, what do you mean you used to be a Christian? What, what, what's the story? He said, well, the story is I live here in the suburbs of Chicago. He said, I, I'm not part of your church. I go to another church. I grew up going to church. Uh, I've always been taught to believe what I believe. I know the Bible stories. I went through the catechism. I got the certificate, you know. And, but he said, I've started to have questions about my faith and started to really wonder, how do I know it's true? And I said, well, that's natural. You're growing up. I mean, you kind of go from the point of saying, well, my parents tell me it's true, therefore it's true, to the point where it's natural to start saying, how do I know this is true? And how do I own this as my own faith? He said, that's what I thought, but that's not what my youth leader thought. And I said, well, tell me what happened. He said, well, I started raising these questions, and he just basically shut me down, and he said, you know, if you just had more faith, you wouldn't have this problem. And I just, you know, groaned. I said, oh, I am so sorry to hear that. And yet I know some of, some of you probably heard that as well. It's like, you don't need to ask these questions. You just need to pray more. Or just, again, have more faith. Like, like faith's a muscle. If you just try harder to believe this nonsense, it'll make sense. Well, if it's nonsense, you can't try harder to believe it. The question is, does it make sense? And how do you know? And so I said, well, okay, so what did you do? He goes, well, that was last spring. When he called me, it was in the fall of that year. And he said, that was last spring. And I was very frustrated, he said, because I really wanted to believe. I'm not trying to be like some skeptic or cynic. I just needed answers. 
And I said, well, what did you do? He said, well, then I realized uh, that I had another chance because in the summertime, every summer, our church has a church camp. And I thought, different leaders, different teachers, I'll ask them my questions. I said, good idea. I said, how'd that go? He said, not very well. I said, what happened? You know, I'm just cringing to hear this. He said, well, I went to camp and I started raising these questions I had about my faith. And the camp leader kind of shut me down and said, you know, you're confusing the other campers. He goes, well, I really want to know. How, we, you know, how do we answer this stuff? How, how do I know I can trust the Bible? How do I know God's who we think he is and that he really exists? And he goes, I don't know, you know, those are hard questions. This isn't the place. He said, tell you what, why don't you ask your youth leader when you get back to your own church? <laughs> I said, that must have been frustrating. He said, very. I said, what did you do? He said, well, I began to realize that there are not probably good answers to my questions. He concluded, based on some adults in his life, not trying to give a good answer, as it tells us to do in 1 Peter 3.15. You know, the scriptures tell us as believers to be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for the reason for the hope that we have. That's a command, but, but these leaders in his life weren't doing that. And he reached the point where he said, I'm not going to believe this stuff anymore if there aren't good reasons for it. And then he told me the part that really grabbed my attention. He said, uh, he said for the last couple of years, up until the summer, he said, I had a group that would meet in my house each week, and it was our Bible study group. And he went to a public high school in the suburbs of Chicago, and he said, we would invite all of our friends and say, why don't you come and you know, learn with us from the Bible? He said, but then the summer, I quit believing it myself. So he said, now... I, I, he said, we had so much fun with our friends getting together and talking, so we didn't want to quit meeting, but we changed our group from a Bible study. He said, now, and this was his term, he said, now we have it, we call it our skeptics group. He said, we still invite the same people over and say, you know, why don't you come and learn about what we're learning about why we're not Christians anymore. I said, oh, well, thanks for sharing. That's nice. No, I, I just said, I hate to hear this, but but I said, I'm really curious, what led you to call me today? He said, well, a, a guy I know who's a Christian, I think it was a guy in his church, said, I don't know how to answer your questions, but I know a guy who teaches a lot on this over at Willow Creek. His name is Mark Middleberg. Before you totally ditch your faith, why don't you call him? So he goes, so you're like my last resort and, uh, you know, no pressure, but... <laughs> but I'm going to become an apostate now. I already sort of have. And uh, just wanted to call and tell you that and see if you had anything to say. I said, well, I'm really, really glad you called. And I said, and I'm really disappointed with the responses you've gotten so far because there's good answers to these things. And I said, would you be willing to meet with me? And this was what shocked me. He, he was shocked that I was willing to meet with him. After all of that, he thought I would just kind of go, well, good luck, you know, read a book or something. And I said, no, 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 let's, let's meet. And he goes, well, could you, could you meet fairly soon? I said, how about today? I mean, because I, I have alarms going off, you know. It's like, this, this is SOS, man. This is, uh, this is, I got to get with this kid quick. And he said, you'd meet with me today? I said, absolutely. I said, how about come into my office this afternoon? Because I've got a lot of books and things here I can show you. I always give reading assignments. And um, he said, great, I'll come this afternoon. So I cleared my calendar that afternoon. 
And he showed up and he brought a friend from his skeptics group. And the two of them were just great young men. High school students, I think they were like juniors in high school. And they came and, uh, you know, we kind of chatted in my office. At this time I had a basement office at the church with no windows. And we went in there and shut the door and talked for like three and a half hours. I think there was sweat on the walls by the time we were done. Um, but we had a great conversation. And you know what? The questions they asked were the very kind that we're going to talk about tonight. The, the, one of which I talked on this morning, the problem of pain and suffering and evil and, and, you know, how do you know the Bible, you know, is true, you know, that you can trust this record? Is it historical? Um, you know, questions about God's existence. All of those standard questions, the kinds of things I wrote about in the book I mentioned this morning that I'll mention again before we're done. Just great stuff. And I did my best to, to say, well, here, have you thought about this? No, I haven't even heard about that. Well, here's some evidence. Here's some information. Here's, here's an article you could read. Here's a book. I, the stack of assignments was growing as we sat and talked. And finally, after about three and a half hours, I, I felt like we're done. You know, we're all toast at this point. And I said, you know, maybe we should end for now, but maybe we could talk again sometime. And I could tell already the ice was melting. And they were really kind of opening up a little bit. And uh, the main guy who had called me thanked me, and he said, you know, this has really been helpful, and, you know, it's just great to finally hear some answers that make sense, and you gave me a lot to think about. I'll do the reading. And then he got a little timid. He said, you know, do you mind? I'd like to ask you something, but, you know, I've already taken so much of your time. I'm hesitant. I said, what? What, what can I do? He said, would you ever be willing to come and, like, talk to my whole skeptics group at my house? And it was like one of those, well, let me pray about it. Yes, God said yes. <laughs> I'd love to come to your house. And he said, well, really, like sometime maybe this fall, I said, how about the next meeting? You know, again, alarms are going off. And, uh, he said, that'd be great. That'd be... I said, now, you know, when I invited you this morning, when you called, I invited you to come to my office here. You brought a buddy. And I said, that's great. I'm glad you both came. I said, now you're inviting me to your place. Is it okay if I bring a friend? He said, sure, that'd be great, whatever. So a few days later, uh, I took my buddy Lee, the case for Christ, Strobel. <laughs> and we had fun. I mean, it was tremendous. He hadn't even written the case for Christ yet, but he had a lot of that information in his head. You know, former atheist, uh, former uh, skeptical journalist. He had been the legal affairs editor of the Chicago Tribune. I know a lot of you know the story, but his book that he later wrote, The Case for Christ, is one of the best books you can read. And if you haven't seen the movie, The Case for Christ, it shows his whole journey, and it's fantastic. It's on Netflix now, or you can you know, get the DVD or whatever. So Lee and I, on the drive over there, said, all right, how do we want to do this? We said, okay, you're the guy that was the skeptic, Lee. You start with your story. And just tell them, you know, because you had all these same questions and, you know, spent two years investigating it. Why don't you tell your story, and then I'll tell mine. I was a prodigal son. I was a guy who grew up in a Baptist church and quietly rebelled against it and walked away from it for my whole time in high school. And it wasn't until I was 19 that I finally woke up spiritually and came to Christ. A uh, story I tell about in my Confident Faith book. And we said, you know, I'll tell my story then, and then we'll just open it up for Q&A. Well, Lee's story took an hour. <laughs> oh, by the way, we get there. 
a living room packed with high school students. You know, they're on the couch and chairs and the arms of the couch and the windowsills and the rafters. I mean, it was just, it was amazing. All these students who were like hungry for information finally had someone that cared to bring them answers. And Lee did a great job. I did okay. And then we did Q&A. And we were there like four hours. And these young people, I mean, they were eating it up. And get this, by the end of the evening, the guy who had first called me had recommitted his life to Christ. And two weeks later, his buddy who he brought to my office gave his life to Christ for the first time. And my favorite part of the story, they kept the group going, but they turned it back into a Bible study. So <laughs> I felt like that was success. Um, but I tell that story to say, I think what we're doing here tonight is really, really important. And, you know, I, as I said this morning, if you were here, you know, I've been studying this stuff for a long time. Um, I'm like a moth to the flame in terms of objections and questions. Uh, a lot of my ministry, you know, has been uh, hosting things, you know, debates between atheists and Christians and skeptics and Christians. Um, I don't know if Lee Strobel told the story about the big debate we did at Willow. Did, did he tell that when he was here? Did he did? Okay. For those that were here, and we hosted a, a debate between an atheist and a Christian and had almost 8,000 people show up, and it was just an amazing evening. And what I believe to be the truth prevailed that night. We took a vote, 97% of the people there said the Christian case was stronger. But on the ballot, and I'm sure he told you this, but in case you don't remember or weren't here, on the ballot we said, are you a Christian? And of the 800 or so people that were there that night that said, I am not a Christian, I walked in here, I'm not a Christian, 82% of them said the case for Christianity was stronger. And of those 47 people, by the time they left that night, said they had become Christians just based on a debate with an atheist. So I, I say that not in a cocky way, but in a confident way that I believe truth points to what we believe as Christians. And uh, some of you may not agree with that, and that's fine. I'm glad you're here. I want to hear what questions you have. I know a lot of us are here and have friends that don't believe that, and we have their questions we want to ask. But what we want to do now is just take, you know, about the next hour or so and hear what your questions are. Uh, I'll do my best to answer them. As Tom said, you know, if you're, if you're here to stump me on some obscure question from the book of Second Hesitations, um, you know, you win because I don't know every obscure question out there. Uh, but I, I try to, you know, focus on the things that really cause people to stumble or doubt or disbelieve what we believe as Christians. So I'm going to relax and sit down. Uh, I've got a chart if I need to draw anything. But let's start. Are we starting with you, Gary? This is my friend Gary Poole right here. Yeah. Hey, everybody. <clears throat> and uh, hey, I want to just uh, set up how we're going to do these questions. As Tom mentioned, we started off asking you kind of a personal question. Where are you on the Christianity scale? And we did that for a purpose because what we'd like to do is honor our guests that are here in the room that would not consider themselves to be a Christian yet. People who would say that on the Christianity scale there are four, three, two, or one. We want to honor you first with questions that you may want to ask Mark. And then if there's time left over, which there probably will be, for those of you that are higher on the scale, we want to hear your questions as well. Primarily those questions that you've heard others who are taking steps in their spiritual journey and are stuck with. You know, they're not... They're, they're, they have a roadblock in their spiritual journey. 
So we have found people that are, or, are brave enough to identify themselves as someone who's a four, three, two, or one on the Christianity scale. So Tim is gonna start with the first question over there. We found a couple other questions over here. But those of you on this side of the room, if you're a four, three, two, or one, would you raise your hand while they're asking a question? I'll come to you and we'll try to find those people. We just wanna honor those of you that are here in the room as our guests. All right, Tim, you wanna go first? Sure, this is Ty. And Ty, I've given them your name. Tell them where you fall on the scale and your question. <clears throat> I uh, rate myself about a four, and um, my question is, uh, as Americans, we got a lot of distractions, from working out to being scholars, um, love, family, work. Um, I want to know what the real purpose of life is. <laughs> Watching movies, you know, I mean, we do so many things, like what do we need, what's the ultimate purpose? Could you repeat the last part of what you said? It's kind of hard to hear up here. So what is the ultimate purpose of life? In Three words or less. Or... You've got three minutes. <laughs> Knock it out of the park. Three minutes. Three minutes. minutes. Yeah, less, that's Mark. right. I, I think I, they told me they're going to have a timer, so I, I think I have three minutes. Thank you so much, Ty. And that's a, a really good question. If the God who we believe a lot of us in the church exists, I think that begins to help shape our answer very quickly. Uh, and that is, God created us in his image. Uh, the Bible says that he made us uh, to conform to his likeness, to, in other words, to kind of follow him. Ephesians 5.1 says to be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. I think he wants us, for instance, God is loving. In fact, the Bible sums up and says God is love. I think God wants us to love the way he does. I think he wants us to care for others the way he does. I think he wants us to fight for justice as he does. Um, I think he wants us to tell the truth like he does. I think he wants us to uh, spread the good news of the, the, what we call the gospel, the good news that there's a savior uh, who wants to forgive us of our sins and who came and died in our place. I think he also wants us to do things that matter and make a difference in this world. Um, if there's no God, and again, th this comes back to the evidence, but uh, this morning, I don't know if you were here this morning, but I quoted Richard Doc Dawkins, the famous atheist biologist professor from Oxford. He believes that we live in a world where there is no design, no purpose. This is almost a quote. I don't have the quote in front of me right now, but he said, where the world is marked by blind, pitiless indifference. He said, you inevitably dance to the music of your DNA and your DNA doesn't care. It doesn't know, it doesn't care about you. Your life has no purpose. I think our heart tells us otherwise. I think deep down we know my life matters. See, in, in an atheistic world, you don't really matter. You just, it's survival of the fittest and you only survive so long and you're done and it's over. The Bible talks about us being created as eternal spirits, I mean, that we never cease to exist and that we matter and that God wants to use us to do noble and important things. So that's my short answer. I, I have a whole minute left to keep dieseling on this if I want to. Uh, one other thing, um, one uh, minister I've gotten to know over the years and, and done some things with is Rick Warren. Uh, he wrote a little book that no one really read. <laughs> called The Purpose Driven Life. I'm joking because it's one of the best-selling books of all time. 
but it's, it's the purpose-driven life. And he, the whole book is about why are we here and what is our purpose. And you might find that book to be helpful. You may want to check it out. Thanks, Ty. Okay, where are we next? I think John is next. John. All right, so um, I've been leading a spiritual discovery group for a little while here, which is a, basically a life group, a small group where we get together with people with questions. And uh, Wayne is in my group, and I'm excited that he came along tonight because he has just the best questions. He stumps me every week. And, oh, great. Uh, <laughs> so I'm glad he's here. So uh, Wayne, introduce yourself and let me show you a question. I was at two last week, but the Eagles won on the three and a half. <laughs> so my question is, let's consider a boy named Mohammed, born in Afghanistan, a country that is less than 1% Christian, doesn't have much chance to become a Christian. He's a devout follower of Islam. He lives this exemplary, wonderful life, goes to an apartment building, saves four people, kids from a fire, perishes in the fire, but he does not believe in Jesus Christ. Does he get to go to heaven? Well, uh, good, and that is a hard question. Um, first of all, I think God is fair. Uh, I think Jesus died for the sins of the whole world and wants everyone to know him. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8, anyone, anywhere who seeks him will find him. Knock and the door will be open. Ask and you'll receive. Uh, I believe that anyone who truly seeks God will find him. Um, how much information they need is a point that's debated in theological circles, but I think ultimately salvation is through Christ. Uh, Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So I believe Jesus is the Savior for the whole world and is the, the way to the Father. I would quickly add uh, something that you won't hear on CNN, um, you won't hear in the media, but I'll tell you what's happening around the world in, since you bring up a Muslim situation, is that God is doing something supernatural in the world, especially in the Muslim community, where, and I, I don't know if you're ready for this, but people in the Muslim community are very dreams-oriented. Uh, they're very into visions and dreams and that kind of thing. And they are having dreams and visions of Jesus that are turning them around from Islam to at least pursuing Christ. Sometimes they don't know quite what to do with it or they're afraid of it. Uh, but to the point where one person told me there were Muslims in Cairo advertising, looking for other Muslims who had had the Jesus dream so they could get together and talk about it, what it meant. And it's so compelling. A friend of mine named Tom Doyle has written three, a series of three books chronicling stories of Muslims having supernatural experiences that are turning them around to the point, get this, there's a book called The Wind in the House of Islam. Uh, according to this, it's a missiology book where they study what's happening in the world. More Muslims have come to faith in Christ this century than all of history. And when I say this century, I don't mean in the last hundred years, and they don't mean in the last hundred years. They mean since the year 2000. More in the last 17, 18 years than in the, whatever it is, 14 centuries before that. So what I see, and again, I, I'm coming at this from the perspective of a Christian. 
I see God intervening where missionaries are, are hard, it's hard for them to go, where there's persecution against Christians and great, you know, efforts to stifle the gospel. God is showing up in person. And uh, I don't know if you were here this morning, but I talked about my friend Nabil Qureshi, who wrote the book Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. That's just an awful sound. <laughs> um, but I'll just finish this thought. He was an intellectual. He studied. He had a friend named David Wood that spent years giving him evidence and reasons, often from Muslim sources. He became intellectually convinced that Christianity is true, but he still said, I cannot destroy my family by converting to Christianity. And he finally said, God or Allah or whatever your name is, um, if you would show me in a supernatural way, in addition to the evidence I've uncovered, I'll follow you. Well, he ended up having, I think it was one vision and three dreams, all of which pointed back to the truth of Christianity. And if someone wants to ask me when I get three more minutes about one of those dreams, I'd be happy to tell you about it. <laughs> but uh, I think God's showing up, and I think he's answering that very question, even in a remote place where they've been taught something else. God's Spirit is doing amazing things. Okay. Sean, yeah. got a so uh, this is Chris, and Chris identifies as a, I want to make sure that I get this correctly, a 5.1 on the Christianity scale. 5.1, right. woo! 5.1, <laughs> all right. So uh, Chris, thank you for, for being willing to get up and share. What is, your, what is your question? Well, I'm among those people that have a general concern over man's influence over the Bible. I don't think it's reasonable to think that there hasn't been some. You faded there at the end. Don't think it's reasonable what? That there hasn't been some influence of man over the Bible and how it's written, how it's assembled, what went in, what was uh, not put in the Bible. Okay. Um, it's a good question, and a lot of people are asking about the, what's called the canon of Scripture, the books that are included, and, and it, it actually goes to the whole question of inspiration. First thing I want to say is the the... I think orthodox understanding of the inspiration of the Bible is not that it's just a like dictated uh, deal where God just says, here are the exact words I want you to say. And then the scripture writer goes, what was that again? Could you repeat that last line? I don't think there's that kind of mechanical dictation. I think rather there's sort of a uh, Peter describes us uh, in First Peter, he says, you know, holy men moved by the Holy Spirit wrote down what he revealed. But I think what's clear is they, they still have their personality intact. And so you get very different styles of writing from different human authors. You get, um, you know, like you have Paul. Paul was feisty. He was, I love him. I mean, he was sarcastic uh, sometimes. He was, Paul could be real edgy and yet loving and true. Uh, Peter was more pastoral and warm. Uh, Luke was like a first century uh, investigative reporter. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. So you see the different personalities. And yet, I think an orthodox doctrine of inspiration is that God made sure that what they communicated was still true, even though it took on the color of their own personalities. So I think that's the first thing. I think there's this divine cooperative thing happening between man and God. And yet, 
The promise in Scripture, and Jesus reiterated this, is that God was superintending the process to make sure that what, would, what was recorded would be true. Um, he, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word, you know, the word of God will never pass away. So I think that's, that's how it worked. Um, I think that uh, Jesus, before he left, he promised, I think it's John chapter 16, that the Holy Spirit would guide his disciples into all truth and bring back to their memory what he taught and guide them. In effect, he was endorsing what they would write in the New Testament. So there is some faith involved to say God was leading them what they, with what they wrote and um, that he led the church in recognizing what was true scripture versus, you know, books that were not inspired by God. Now, we can talk more about that because I'm sure I'm about, oh, I got 30 seconds left. Uh, one more thing I'll say about this is you can test it empirically by saying, does it hold up historically? Um, and I love that question, and maybe someone wants to ask about that as well, but uh, the Bible holds up you know, it, it's confirmed by all kinds of outside secular sources that at least confirm the broad contours of what the Bible records. It's also confirmed over and over thousands of times by archaeology. Uh, so that's what I think about that. You were sort of using it anyway, right? No, no, I was just getting going. I was going to say, you don't have to use the full three minutes. But... No, I think that clock is evil, actually. <laughs> All right, so I've got a great question from Charlie. Charlie, would you stand up? So, Charlie, I'm going to interview him real quick so you can get a little bit of background. So where are you on the scale from 1 to 10, Christianity scale? Zero. And then uh, you, you were telling me earlier you weren't always a zero. What were you before? Probably as a teenager, I went from a 5 to a zero over. I'm 82 years old, so teenager was a long time ago. <laughs> so it was a slow, gradual change. All right, and so now who brought you here? Uh, my friend Harold, who, by the way, used to play in the U.S. Army Band for the Presidents. Oh, wow. All right. Fantastic. Well, let's give him a hand. All right. Is that why you came, because of him? Yeah, yeah because of Harold, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be invited. Well, I really appreciate you having, you know, the courage to come to a church and say, hey, I'm a zero on that scale. And yeah, well, I, I don't like having it be zero. That just sounds like that's not a good number. Yeah. Um, but You're anyway, I, yeah. let's see. Oh, the, okay, I'm a one. <laughs> there you go. He's moving up. Yeah, All we're, right, we're getting there. <laughs> so no, he's got a great question, and I think this is a really sincere question. I really appreciate you sharing it with me. So why don't you share it with everyone here and Mark as well? Okay, thank you for inviting us. Um, there are now approximately seven. 0.4 billion of us on this little blue planet. And out of that 7.4 billion, 31.4% are Christian, and the other 69 or so percent are um, other denominations that, that reject the notion that Jesus is their savior. So my question is this. Um, how do we account for the fact that after nearly 2,000 years of effort, less than one-third of us accept Jesus as our personal savior, while a large majority, or over two-thirds of us, reject that idea? And if you can't answer the question, that's fine, because I'd rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. 
Thank you so much. Good question. Thanks, Charlie. Um, it's a sobering question because I think part of it points to failure from us as a church and as Christians sometimes to do a good job because I think we have the best news possible. I think the fact that we have a Savior who loves us, who provided a way back to the Father and ultimately to heaven is, is great news. And I think sometimes we just have been too timid or fearful or self-absorbed or busy to do a good job. And by the way, that's part of why I'm here. I applaud what this church is doing. You know, this is not normal for churches to be doing events even like this, where we open it up and, and respond to questions and to have, you know, groups designed to help discuss these things and have a whole series called Room for Doubt that this church is doing right now. I applaud Sherwood Oaks for, for addressing this. And I think it's a model uh, for what every church should be doing. So, but I think part of it is a failure of us to do and get urgent. You know, when I was talking about this high school student, I have these alarms going off. I think we all need to have that kind of urgency to say, you know, the time is short. What we have is true. We've got to get the good news out there and to take risks for the sake of the gospel. Um, other reasons, I think uh, Jesus warned there would be false teachings and false teachers that would lead many astray. Uh, Paul made it clear that even though uh, people deep down have an awareness of the truth, that, that because of our sinful nature and our desire to do things that please us, it says in Romans 1 that we suppress the truth. And I've seen that where I've had people asking me questions and as soon as I give an answer, they got the next question. They're not really even listening to my answer. They're just coming up with more reasons not to believe. And I finally said, you know, sometimes I just go, time out seems like you're working harder on the next question than you are on listening to the answer. And if you don't like my answer, that's fine, and we can talk about that, but you're not really rejecting my answer. You're kind of ignoring it and going to the next question. What's going on? And they go, what do you mean? And I go, well, what, were, what are you afraid of? You know, what would you have to give up? And I've had people say, well, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I'm living with my girlfriend, I kind of have a feeling God would have something to say about that. And I'm going, that's the issue. A lot of times it's a moral issue. And, and I think that's what Paul's saying in Romans 1, that we squelch the truth because we don't want to hear it. The, the, Jesus talks in John chapter 3 about men loving darkness because their deeds are evil. So I think it's a mix of false teaching. I think it's a mix of sin. I think sometimes it's a mix of our failure to do what we need to. But I am convinced that the evidence points to what we believe. Um, and anyone zero on the scale, you can take one of my books for free, even though the buzzer beeped. Uh, I have a book out there called Confident Faith that gives 20 reasons why I think it's true. And uh, yeah, Gary, grab one for Charlie there. But uh, I hope you'll read it, and I'll give you my email address afterwards. If you want to interact on it, I'd love to interact with you. And, uh, and sometime maybe we can talk afterwards. I'd love to hear what happened that brought you from a five to zero because there's a story there. And uh, maybe we can talk more. Okay, Sean. So uh, Mark, I don't know if you know this, but we are live streaming this event and we have about 110 people that awesome. are watching um, on our Facebook Live uh, feed right now. And so we have a question that where, came where in. Where do I say hi to them, here? Let's give it, yeah, one of those cameras. Um, Katie Up here, Shamel, thanks for joining us. 
They're Katie, right here. Katie Shamwell has a, has a question that I think is, uh, is excellent. Um, and it's, it's honestly a question that, that I've had before as well. Um, she says, is Christianity based on fear? If so, why is, what is loving about that? The Old Testament depicts God as violent and vengeful, and there are so many punishments. It doesn't feel good and kind and loving. Um, how would you respond to, to this question? Well, thank you for, what was the person's name? Katie Shamel. Katie? Okay, Katie, thanks for that question. It's a good question. Um, I don't think it's based on fear. I think it's based on love. But I think sometimes the most loving thing to do is warn people of things they should be afraid of, too. Um, Penn Gillette, the atheist, entertainer, magician, comedian, you may know his name. Um, it, there's a famous YouTube video that went viral where he did a, a little YouTube vlog thing. And he talked about how after one of his shows, a Christian tried to, as he puts it, proselytize him. Tried to, and gave him a Bible. And, and he said, now you might think as an atheist, I'd be really ticked off at this guy. He said, I'm not. He said, because this guy, he was looking me in the eyes. He was a good guy. And he kept saying that. He was a sincere guy. And he said, you know what? He said, if he is convinced that I'm going to hell, I respect him for, for caring enough to take a risk to talk to me. And then he, he said this again. This is an atheist, a renowned atheist. He said, you know, if I know someone's standing in, a, in front of a truck and the truck's going to hit him, I'll try to warn them. And at some point, if they don't listen to me, I'm going to tackle them. And then he looks at the camera and he says, you know, if you know, I'm, and he goes, I know this stuff's not true. He goes, I don't believe in God. But if you really believe that, and you really believe that I'm headed for God's judgment, how much do you have to hate me not to tell me? That's an atheist saying this. And I think it's a great question. Um, again, I, I don't think our main message ought to be fear. I think it's that God loves us enough to, to make provision for us to, um, you know, so that we can all end up being forgiven and in his family. Uh, he, that, that's a love-based message. But the fact is the truck is coming. It's not because God wants it to happen. I read a verse this morning from 2 Peter 3. It says, God is not willing that any of us would perish. He wants us all to come to a knowledge of the truth. But he also says, if you keep rejecting me and rejecting my provision for salvation, you'll ultimately face the, the judgment day without the Savior. I don't want that to happen. But he does love us enough to tell us the truth. He loves us enough to say the truck is coming. And if you, if you have to be afraid of trucks to get off the road, then fear is a good thing. If you have to be fearful of God's judgment, that's not a bad motivation too, but I don't think it's our main message. Our main message is that there's good news. God loves us. He wants to know us. He wants to forgive us and lead our lives. There, Gary, I did it under three minutes. I'm proud of you, man. All right. Hey, uh, before Sean asks that question, uh, he's got someone here. Just want to make sure that if anybody else is in the room that wants to ask you a question, you're a 43201, please raise your hand so that one of us can find you. And, uh, and then uh, we'll go from there. So, Sean, go ahead. So, I have Amy here. And Amy's been, you said you've been attending Sherwood Oaks for about a year. About a year. And, and where do you identify on the Christianity scale? Between five and six. 
five and six. All right. Well, we're so glad that you are here tonight. And you came prepared, written question. And uh, so what is your question uh, tonight? My question is, why does God reveal himself to some people but not others? Okay, why does God reveal himself to some people and not to other people? Um, there's a little part of that, I got to admit, uh, as I said this morning, I do not know, a four-word answer, answer. In other words, why does he appear in a dream to Nabil and not to another Muslim friend that I'm, I've been talking to now for a year and a half on Twitter who's really wants to believe, but he has not had a dream or vision or any of those kinds of experiences that many Muslims are. I don't know why God chooses to, to reveal himself in a special way to some people and not to, in a special way to other people. Uh, that's a hard question. And it's, you know, sovereign God, you know, decides how he'll, he wants to reach out to people. There's a verse uh, where Jesus says the, the spirit is like the wind. It kind of, you don't know where it's coming and going and it's hard to predict, um, especially in Indiana, right? Um, and freezing rain and all that. Um, but I would quickly add that I think God has, in a broad way, revealed himself to everybody. Um, again, I keep going back to this passage, but Romans 1 talks about how God is seen in nature and that there's enough evidence from nature to help us to realize that there's a powerful, loving being behind all of this. Uh, in spite of people, you know, thinking the, the cosmos is a cosmic accident, the order in the universe points to a designer. The uh, fact that we're um, here at all points to a cause outside of the universe. And these are some of the arguments I give in the Confident Faith book. But um, I think good logic and science points to the fact, let me just give you that one. Uh, and this one's going to be hard to do in three minutes. But um, there's an argument, three-part argument. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, and almost universally in science, they believe in the Big Bang, this event where however many billion years ago, out of nothing, uh, boom, there's a universe. And I say nothing. It was a singularity, a point where the entire universe has collapsed to nothing, and boom, we have a universe. So whatever has a beginning has a cause. The universe had a beginning, and almost every scientist of every belief agrees with some version of the Big Bang. The conclusion of this is, therefore, the universe had a cause, and that cause can't be part of the universe. In other words, it cannot be physical, because the whole physical world came into being at the Big Bang. Therefore, that cause has to be something other than physical. I would call it spiritual. Um, more than that, time itself, according to Stephen Hawking and lots of other people, time began at the Big Bang. Therefore, the cause of the universe is outside of time. I would call that eternal. The cause of the universe had to be powerful enough. This is a big question. I get extra points on this. Um, had to be powerful enough to, you know, what kind of power does it take to evoke a universe like this in a fraction of a nanosecond out of, out of nothing? I think it's a powerful being. You might even call it omnipotent. It also had to be a wise being because things were fine-tuned against all odds for life to exist. So I think this being had to be wise. Um, you might even call it omniscient. 
I think this being was also loving to give us the kind of life we have where we can enjoy it, where we can debate these ideas, where we have beauty, where, you know, life isn't all gray. Um, We have beautiful colors. We have beautiful hummingbirds. We have beautiful sunrises and sunsets and flowers. And I mean, I think this is an artistic, loving being. And I haven't even quoted a Bible verse. This all just comes out of logic and science. And that's, by the way, called the Kalam cosmological argument, if you like big words. But, uh, and I go into that again in the book Confident Faith, if you want to read the details of that. But it's a strong argument. And if you're wondering if, if it's compelling, uh, I have friends who debate this with leading atheists in the world and win debates because the evidence is solid. Now, I, I went into detail with that to say, without quoting a Bible verse, just from what we can observe in the scientific, in the world and in science and using logic, it points to all of what I just said. And doesn't that character who is the cause of the universe, who is outside of time, who's spiritual, who's that powerful, that knowing, that caring, and so on, doesn't that sound suspiciously similar to a God we read about in the book of Genesis? So even people that don't have the Bible have all kinds of evidence around them. And when you read the Bible, I think you have a lot of credible additional evidence. And I think it all points to the same place. And this is information that's available to anyone. So I think God has revealed himself in a general way to the world and in special ways to certain people. But I think there's enough for all of us to be responsible and able to seek that God. And again, as Jesus said in Matthew 7, 7, to find him. So, I, I just got to tell you real quick, I'm thinking of our friend Ricky Bolden, yeah. former NFL football player with the Cleveland Browns. I, I've taught with him all over the world. And uh, he, he's kind of sometimes, you know, the whole beeper thing. I remember once, I don't know if you were there, Gary, we were doing a conference, and he's big guy, big African-American, six foot six. 350 pounds, I mean, and someone kept holding a little whiteboard up in the front row. It was their job. They were just doing what they were supposed to do, you know. Five minutes left, four minutes left. You're done, out, over. And finally, Ricky, and he's a fun guy. He finally goes, you put that sign down or I'm taking you out. <laughs> and in his case, it was a credible threat. Uh, in my case, I, you know, I could say it and everyone will just laugh, but I always think of that when buzzers and people tell you to quit. So if you go over three minutes one more time, I'm taking you out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. That was a great question and a great answer. So I'm glad you took the extra time. That was okay, great. Okay, thanks. Good job. All right, so John's got a next question and then Tim's got a question after that. Anybody else have a question? Raise your hand. All right. And you know what? We have some people in the balcony and John could just oh. reach up there yeah. with the mic. Pretty close, right? Uh. All right, so uh, Nate, do you mind setting up? So I met Nate this evening. Uh, Nate, how long have you been coming to Sherwood Oaks? Uh, how? Um, just actually a couple months. We um, are attending the West Side campus. Excellent, great. Well, great to have you here. I love the question you're about to ask. It's a question that comes up most weeks in my group. So yeah, please go ahead. Okay, uh, I got to be our spokesperson, but I think collectively our group. Um, it's not a, a question of doubt, as opposed to um, just a question that one of our one of my new friends has. And I want to give you the background. Lost a brother recently, and um, I guess invoked a lot of questions um, just about death and, and eternity and heaven. And um, heard your points this morning. And point five was that God will finally judge evil. Um, and had a question: Is that a collectively judged, or is that more on an individual basis? Um, 
as in some of that questions that get brought up is Jesus turning to the center next to him and saying, um, surely today you'll be with me in paradise. And so um, the question, I guess, was more on has that judgment already happened for them, uh, for her brother? Um, and um, can you explain just point five a little bit more from this morning um, to help a little bit of clarity there? Okay. Good question. Um, based on the parable Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16 of the rich man and Lazarus, um, I believe that for those who reject God and reject his provision, and, and let me just quickly say, you know, when we talk about God's punishment, I know I've already said this, but it's not God's will to punish people. That's what he sent his son to die in our place. But for those that reject his provision, uh, based on the rich man and Lazarus example, there's an immediate separation from God at death. Um, and for those that are his followers, an immediate in his presence. Uh, but theologians call that the intermediate state. In other words, they're, they're, there's a, a sense of the ultimate destiny right away. And again, Luke 16 is where you can read that parable. But then there's the ultimate judgment, which is where God, you know, each person gives an account of their actions and life. And those who have trusted the Savior, Jesus's record is in place of ours. And so that's good news. It's available to all of us. Um, but yes, God does hold us each accountable for what we did with what we knew and, and what we believed. Um, the part of the question you didn't ask, but maybe there, is if he wasn't a believer, does that mean he's now out of God's presence? The only thing I would say on this, and I, I'm not saying this to hedge, but just to say honestly, we never know what God might have done in even the last moments of a person's life, especially if they knew the truth and they've floundered on it. And God has a way of touching people and doing things in lives that we don't even understand and often don't even know about. And I'm not trying to say, therefore, for sure he's in heaven. But I'm saying if he wasn't a believer, we don't know for sure that something didn't happen in the interim period. Um, the thief on the cross didn't have much time and didn't say a lot of religious stuff, but he believed and he and Jesus promised him paradise. And uh, Lee Strobel interviewed a famous atheist for his book, Case for Faith, a guy who had written a book called My Farewell to God. And on his deathbed, he sat up right before he died. This is Charles Templeton, or John Templeton, one of the two. I think it's Charles. Um, according to his wife, he sat up and said, God's come back for me. And the angels are here. This is a guy who claimed to be an atheist. And I don't know what was going on there. We, you know, I'll, in heaven I'll ask, but uh, God may have been doing some, some work with this guy right at the end. So I, I think there's reason to still hold out hope and say, God, you know, intervene and uh, Lord, please bring Charlie from a one up to a five soon. And you just never know how God might work, right? But uh, I, I just believe in grace, and I believe God. One more story, since I have so much time left. Two seconds. Um, Lee Strobel, in the final conversation of his father-in-law's life, had, he'd been sharing the gospel with him for 20 years. Final conversation. His father-in-law, Al, trusted Christ and thanked Lee, and those were the last cogent words he ever spoke. He had a stroke and died. 
I think that's a thief on the cross story, and I hope that that's true of the man that you just mentioned as well. Okay, Tim's got a question front. So I've got my friend Ali here, and Ali, I'll be honest with you, when you told me your name, all I could think about was Walt Disney's Aladdin. And I, so so you are, Muhammad you are Ali. hereafter, well, uh, Muhammad Ali, but, uh, but, but he looks a little bit more like Aladdin. So, <laughs> if you say so. So, <laughs> so stand up. Tell us a little bit about where you fall on the scale and how long have you been coming? Are you involved with the church? How are you involved here? And I'm going to ask where you're from. So where you're at on the scale and where you're from. I am um, about a six on the scale. I'm from Egypt. Egypt, very good. Now, what brought you to Bloomington? School. So what are you studying? Uh, okay, very good. We'll see how we manage What are you studying? Management. Management, okay. Management. He looks like a good manager, doesn't he? Yes. So your question is a good one. It, it, it sort of follows on the heels of this morning and maybe has a little bit to do with the question that was brought earlier, a philosophical yes. question. Ask the question. So my question is, uh, I've been talking to my Muslim family for quite a while, and um, <clears throat> something that they believe about God is that he can be a source of evil. So he can put sickness in my life. He can put something bad to happen in my life so he can work it out to be something good later on. Um, and usually when I talk to them about that, I tell them about the time where the Pharisees were questioning Jesus about a man that was having a sickness and was asking him if, if it was his father or mother that caused yeah. him to have it. And how Jesus responds and says, God made it all to work for good. Um, so does, according to a biblical view, does God, can he, can he use evil to bring out something good or is he only good? You know, before you start the timer, um, I, I met Ali today, and you, wait, before you go away with the mic, <laughs> um, so you're a former Muslim, you came to faith, and I didn't ask you this today, so I have no idea, was it mostly an intellectual journey, or did you have some of the kinds of supernatural occurrences that, that we've been discussing, or I'm just curious kind of what brought you across the line? It was mostly intellectual. Um, okay. I sat down and kind of did my research, and I, I used to believe that the Bible is corrupted and all of the sorts of different stuff that Ahmadidat, Zachary Naik, the, the Muslim debaters brought up. Um, after I told my parents that I became a Christian, I started getting dreams about Jesus standing by my side. Um, sometimes, like, my, my, uh, my sibling, like, she would be struggling with an evil spirit, and I would try to call, like, say stuff from the Quran, and it wouldn't really work. And once I said, in Jesus' name, I rebuke that evil spirit, it would go away and everything would be calm. Wow. So I've had a lot of dreams like that that I had to ask God to stop it because I was getting really stressed. But Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, how long have you been a, a, a Christian? Since March. Since March. Well, welcome to the family, huh? That's tremendous. That's great. Back to your question. Um, you can start the timer now. Just, just to be a good sport about it. The, the problem with the timer is I can't see the numbers. <laughs> oh, are they up? Oh, right there. Okay. And that means from now on I can do it within three minutes. In fact, this one I'm going to do shorter, so I'm just going to wait and let the time count down. <laughs> no, um, I, I think you probably know this, but the, the God presented in the Quran and believed by Muslims, Allah, in other words, is very different from the God of the Bible. 
And I know there's a cliche that all the religions kind of teach the same thing, just use different names for God. That's baloney. I like what John Lennox, the uh, math, mathematics professor from Oxford said. He said, the only people who say all the religions teach the same thing are atheists who don't believe in any of the religions. Because Muslims, I, I've never heard a Muslim say all the religions are the same. And I, true Christians don't believe that, nor do Hindus or Buddhists. Um, but what you get in, uh, in the teaching of Islam with Allah is a God who can be sort of capricious. He, he, there's no guarantee of salvation. Even if you're a faithful Muslim all your life, there's teachings that he might just change his mind about you anyway. Um, you can hope that if you're a good Muslim, I mean, according to Muslim teachings, you can hope that maybe he'll let you into heaven or paradise at the end, but there's no guarantee. God changes his mind. Sometimes he causes evil. Sometimes he just messes with people. And there's also very clear teachings, I think, in the Quran as well as some of the Hadith and other places, that God does not love unbelievers. He despises unbelievers. And he doesn't like hypocrites, and he doesn't like people who are wavering in their faith. He only cares about the people who are faithful followers of his. And even then, I think it's pretty rare to hear the word love associated. He's more of a sovereign God who's a strict judge and, and sort of unpredictable. Versus the God revealed in the Bible, who is a loving, patient, slow to anger, but fair and just, holy God. Um, who wants us to know him, as I've quoted earlier. He isn't willing that any perish. He wants us all to come to him. For God so loved the whole world. He loved you. You can fill your name in on that verse. He so loved you that he sent his only begotten son. That's the God of love, the God of patience, the God of, uh, who, who, who wants all of us to come home to him. So you get a very different God. And in the last 15 seconds, you get a very different Jesus. And if, if you want to ask me about that, I'd love to talk about it. <laughs> but you get very, they say they believe in Jesus, but as you know, a very different version of Jesus as well. So John's got a question here next from the live stream. John? Great, thank you. Yes, yeah, so we have someone watching online, Jay. He has a great question. And it is, if there is an all-knowing God... Why would he or she create so many wonderful different peoples and cultures, but give them only one true path? We all have different ways of seeing, believing, and perceiving the world. Okay, um, Jay, thanks for that question. Uh, does it say where Jay's from? I'm just kind of curious where people are. It does not. does not, okay. Um, I don't know that God created a bunch of different cultures, and I certainly don't think God created a bunch of different religions. Uh, I talked this morning, if, if he, he may not have heard that message, right? I talked about how a lot of the confusion and uh, suffering and, and th problems in the world are human caused. And I think one of the reasons we have a lot of confusion in the culture about who God is is because of false teachers uh, who in many cases are motivated by self-gain and teach what they want to teach. The Bible warns about false prophets. Jesus said many false messiahs would come. Second um, Timothy 4 warns about people in the latter days who would teach to say what people wanted to hear, to tickle itching ears is, is the way uh, Paul says it. So I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes. I think there's always been one God 
one truth, and I think God's always been beckoning people to come back to that one truth. Now, I will add, since I have so much time left, that uh, some people say, well, it's, it still seems so narrow. You know, why is God so narrow? He says, my way or the highway? Well, my answer to that is, if there's one way that leads to life, I'm glad he's just telling us the truth about it. Here, let me put it this way. I'm flying back to Denver. I, I live in Denver now. I'm flying back tomorrow uh, on a United flight. And I, here's something I like about United and the other airlines I fly. They have narrow-minded pilots. <laughs> and I'm really glad about that because I don't want a pilot who's creative about where he's going to land the airplane. Do you? I don't, you know, I live right next to the Rocky Mountains. I don't want my pilot going, I wonder what it'd be like to kind of land on the front slope of, the, of that, you know, Pikes Peak or something. Or um, I wonder what it'd be like to land in the lake. Or I wonder what it'd be like to fly down to the beach somewhere or, uh, or you know, over a forest or something. I want a narrow-minded pilot who says, I insist on landing on that narrow path that leads to life called a runway. And I bet you want the same kind of pilot. Well, there's a Savior who says, you can try to land wherever you want, but I'm telling you there's a narrow path that leads to life, and I'm that path. And it's narrow, but it's true. It's like someone who's sick and dying, and there's one, one medication or one treatment that could save their life. Then be narrow-minded. Don't, don't get creative here. Let's do the one that works. And I think that's the situation we have. There's one remedy for sin, and that's the Savior who died for your sins. Good job, Mark. Thanks. So uh, I've got a question here from Becky in a minute, but I wanted to make a quick uh, plug. I don't know if you guys have met John. John, where are you? Oh, he's right here. John is the volunteer head of the Spiritual Discovery Group Ministry. And I know Tom is going to talk about this in a, in a few minutes, but we have this ministry here at Short Oaks. It's called Spiritual Discovery Groups, and it's designed for people who are, are investigating spiritual things, are trying to answer these kinds of questions, and we design these groups to be a safe place for people who are a four, three, two, or one to get together where they outnumber the Christians so they feel extra safe, where they can ask their questions and not be judged, and to be able to kind of make these kinds of discoveries and investigate at your own pace. So I just wanted to... Make, uh, give a shout out to John because I really appreciate you leading this ministry and facilitating that and I know there's several groups that are being formed and more are formed as people join so we want to open up and extend the invitation to everyone and Tom is going to give you some specific instructions on how to join if, if you'd like to do that so we're going to open it up now wait, wait. Have... plus John has an awesome accent too oh yeah so. he does that's a bonus yeah so uh, we're going to open it up now if you have if you're a 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, or a 10, I especially want to meet those of you that are a 10. And if you have a question, we want you to raise your hand. It's a burning question. And the other guys are going to come up to you. And I'm going to start with Becky here. So Becky, could you stand? And so Becky, can I just interview you a little bit and ask you how long you've been coming to Short Oaks? Oh, three, four years, four years. How long have you been? 60. Oh, no, <laughs> that's impossible. <laughs> Time flies when you're having fun. Yeah. So, and where are you on the Christianity scale? Sometimes six, sometimes eight. Okay. All right, good. And what is your question? Uh, I never had any question about the Trinity until a Muslim friend asked me why I believed in three gods. And <laughs> I couldn't answer it. And now it's really made me question. Who do we really pray to? Who's, and are they separate units? And okay. So, 
great, great question. Good question. And first of all, the short answer to the Muslim friend is we don't believe in three gods. Uh, the, the, one of the angles that Islam loves to take against us is to call us polytheists. Because you believe in the Father's God, Son's God, Spirit is God, therefore you're a polytheist. You believe in many gods. We don't. And it's very clear from Scripture there is one God. And in fact, how do we get to the Trinity? We get through to it through four teachings that are very clear in Scripture. Number one, I just said, it's, you know, what comes in Deuteronomy, the famous passage here, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And that's the consistent teaching of Scripture. One God. Second thing is that the Father is God. And there's clear verses about that, but no one disputes it, so I won't go into it. Third one is that Jesus is God. Now, he calls him the Son of God, but what that means is he shares the nature of the Father. He shares his divine nature. And Scripture is very clear. In fact, there's a place in uh, John 5 where Jesus says, I'm doing the work of my Father. I, you know, my Father and I are one. And it says, in claiming the, 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 that unique relationship with the Father the way he did, it says right in John, he was making himself out to be God. And that's clear in John 8, John 12, or excuse me, John 8, John 10, Colossians 1, uh, Hebrews 1 calls him God, Philippians 2 that I quoted this morning. These are all passages that make it clear Jesus is God. And the fourth teaching in Scripture is that the Holy Spirit is God. So if you do the math with all that, there's one God, and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God. What becomes clear is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three persons in the one God. There's like three who's in one what. Now, does that completely take away all mystery or make it totally clear? No. Uh, I explained that once to a Jehovah's Witness, and Jehovah's Witnesses denied the Trinity, and he said, you know, our, our beliefs are much simpler than yours. I'm going, well, that, that's probably true. Uh, but that doesn't make them right. He goes, well, and he asked me this. He goes, why would God make it so hard? And I said, just listen to what you just asked me. You're acting like God made up a story here for our consumption. God is not telling us little fairy tales for, for our ease of, of, you know, digestion. He's telling us the truth of who he is. It's not surprising. In fact, the way I said it to him is, it would be surprising to me if the complex, almighty creator of the universe who's eternal was so simple I could grasp him like that. I'm not surprised it's a little complex. But what is clear is that all four of those scriptural truths are true. There's one God who exists in three persons, which is where we get the word Trinity. It's tri, three persons, in unity, Trinity. That's where we get the word. And it's very clear in scripture. And there's even hints of it in the Old Testament, which I could talk about sometime. Um, Sean's got one over here, Sean. All right, uh, so Mark, I have Claire, and uh, she says that she is an eight on the Christianity scale with questions. And uh, so she's going to ask you uh, one of her questions just about denominations okay. and, uh, and then also about translations of the Bible. Um, yeah, so I'm just curious about like, the interpretations of the Bible and how there's just so many different types of Christianity out there and just the conflict that there is within Christianity as a whole um, and how that stems back to like, biblical truth, I guess. And, and Claire, you said that you grew up Catholic. 
and so still you have some family that are practicing Catholics and uh, so just a, a lot of confusion about the splits and if we all kind of came from the same point of reference how did we wind up in so many different places okay uh, there's almost two questions in there uh, when you mentioned translations some of that and I'll, I'll make this part shorter because it wasn't your main question but one of the questions a lot of people say is, you know, if there's one revelation from God, one Bible, why do we have so many translations? And the answer to that is easy. We're trying to do our best to bring the original languages of Hebrew and Greek, the Old Testament and New Testament, into current language, and current language is always changing. And so we have different translations, which are different attempts at trying to bring it into the vernacular so we can understand it. And to me, it's a strength, not a weakness, because you can compare the translations and get a better sense of what the original says. And they, they, they're not like contradictory, they're supplementary. Unless you're reading a Jehovah's Witness Bible, uh, the New World Translation, which they changed to fit their doctrines. That's, that would be the exception. But as far as denominations, a, a lot of people say, you know, how can I believe in Christianity when there's so much division and fighting and denominations and so on? And I take just the opposite stance on that as well. The reason they're denominations and not cults or other sects or other religions is because, get, get this, it's the same root word here, denominations share a common denominator. In other words, there's a whole lot more similar between the various denominations than there is different. And this is why I could work for the Willow Creek Association, which had, I don't know what it has now, but we had over 100 different denominations, as well as churches like this one that are not part of a denomination, all in unity saying, we agree on the Bible being the Word of God, Jesus being the Savior, there being one true God, the Trinity is true, uh, that salvation is by grace. We agree on this, and yet we baptize a little differently, and we, you know, have a little different tradition, and one church takes communion every week, and another does it once a month, and, and there's different, and you can, we could fight over those things, I guess, and some people do, um, but that's not really the essence of it. The essence is what we share. The common denominator is why we're denominations, which means we're part of the same family. And in Catholicism, I know there's a little more differences in some cases, but we still have the same Savior. We still have the same, uh, generally the same Bible. I know there's a debate about a few of the books, but I, I think we have a lot more in common than we do different. And I like to build on that commonality and teach the clear thing that we agree on, which is the gospel message. All right, Mark, we've got two more questions that we're going to end with. Gerald's got a question, and then John over there has a question, and then we're going to let you wrap things up, okay? Yeah, because I have a couple of things I want to say here at the end. So. Yeah, yeah we'll, give you a few, we'll give you a couple of minutes. All right. A couple, couple hours. <laughs> All right, Gerald, uh, how long have you been coming to Short Oak? Um, eight years. Okay, and where are you on the scale, uh, Christianity scale? I'm a nine. Uh, the, the, the question that I have here is that there are a number of different interpretations of the following. It's 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 21. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Are we going back to a thing where God is both good and evil? No. 
What, what that, it's a good question. What that's talking about is not, God's not good and evil, and God did not create evil, as I explained in the message this morning. By the way, if, if people didn't hear that message on pain and suffering, it's on the website, right? Yes. Okay. S-O-C-C dot org. So if I, I talked on that whole thing of God doesn't create evil, but where does evil come from? and uh, How do we face it? And, and pain and suffering and so on. If you want to watch that, it's SOCC.org. Uh, you can watch that message. Uh, as well as the whole Room for Doubt series where Tom and uh, maybe other teachers are covering a whole lot of tough questions. So um, I would urge you to do that. But what this is talking about is the incarnation, and, and specifically, Jesus became, first of all, human, but then he took on sin for us. And it's talking about how he, and I talked about this at the end this morning, how he became sin for us. In other words, the, the sins of the whole world were put on the back of Jesus so that he could carry our, it's the, I call it the great exchange. We give him our sin. We, it was put on him on the cross. And if we will do that and give him our sin, he will give us back his righteousness. And this is all about the atonement of Christ. How the atonement, as people have said, it's if you break up the word atonement, it's at one meant. Um, what it means is it's how we become one or become back in relationship with God. And it's through the Savior who paid the penalty by dying on the cross for our sins. And Jesus, when he gave his mission statement ahead of time, he explained, he said, I have come that I could give my life as a ransom, as a payment for, for these people's sins so that you can be forgiven. So that is really the good news of the gospel, that Jesus took our sins so that we can have his righteousness, his forgiveness, so that at the judgment day, if you're his follower, you're not in trouble for what you did in your past life. You're forgiven because of what Jesus did for you and what you received as a follower of his. So thank you. And I'm going to come back to that in my closing comments, but John. Thank you. So, last question. So, this is a good friend of mine, Lyra, and uh, she kind of has a follow-up to the question previously. Uh, I have a question about heaven, and I'd like to know more about what the Bible says about heaven and when heaven <coughs> begins. The idea of this future judgment day confuses me a little bit. Um, assuming someone has salvation, believed in Jesus, is that person or is that person's soul already in heaven? Or, is, or, or not, there was even, uh, and what, I, I just would love to know as much about yeah. heaven as possible, I guess, in terms of what, what you know and believe from the Bible. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And by the way, I do have a chapter in this book that I have out here, the questions Christians hope no one will ask about heaven, where I go into some of this kind of, uh, this issue. Um, it's kind of the, question that this other man asked earlier that the Bible talks about this what theologians sometimes call the intermediate state and uh, it's where I mentioned the rich man and Lazarus the parable in Luke 16 I think it makes clear there as well as other places like Paul talks about uh, he says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and he says even though I'm, I'm enjoying my ministry and, and serving here on earth I, I, I almost wish I could just go now and be with God and be in his presence because that'll be far better. So it was clear Paul had this present hope that 
you leave this body, you are in God's presence. And the parable in Luke 16 shows the man Lazarus, who was a follower of God, immediately in God's presence. So in that sense, I think it's fair to say you're immediately in heaven. But not in the completed sense. And what I mean by that is, uh, the Bible talks about the future resurrection of our bodies. And I referred to it earlier this morning in Romans 8. It talks about that future day when God will reveal his sons and daughters and there will be kind of the culmination of all things, the judgment and then heaven, you know, for real and in our resurrected bodies at that point. And so that's why that period between now and then is called the intermediate state. There's a spiritual awakeness, if that's a word, and a spiritual presence in God, you know, being with God. But that is culminated when there's the resurrection at the end of the age and after the judgment. Then we're in heaven in a physical way with resurrected bodies, much like Jesus' resurrected body uh, with him for eternity in heaven. So it's kind of for me at both ends. I don't think it's wrong to say someone's in heaven now who's a believer who's died. Um, I think my friend Nabil is in heaven. But in a physical sense, there will be a completion of that for him and for all of us at that time of the resurrection. Okay? Gary? I'm waiting for Gary to tell me what to do. Was that the last question? That is the last question, Mark. Okay. Um, here's what I want to do, I've, and I'm, this is going to be brief. I want to give you um, a few last thoughts, and especially for any of you that are kind of looking in and trying to figure out, does this make sense? And I'm going to give you a very abbreviated version. I don't even have the book up here, but, um, and I want to mention the books that are available. The book that I mentioned, the, the book Confident Faith, I have two books out there. Confident Faith is the one in which I present 20 arguments for the Christian faith, reasons based on science, philosophy, history, uh, spiritual experience, archaeology, uh, things related to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the Bible, and so on. 20 reasons. And that's in a book called Confident Faith out there. The other book that is probably more pertinent to most of what we've done here tonight uh, is the one I do have up here called The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. And uh, that one deals with 10 of the top questions and includes many that we've talked about here tonight. Um, and I just want to let you know, these resources are available and we've discounted them heavily to make them, you know, easy to get. And, uh, you know, especially if you're, if you're not a Christian tonight or if you can't afford it, I'll give you one. Uh, my goal is to spread the good news and to give good answers. Um, but they, they are priced so they're affordable. It's almost half off if you buy the two together. But anyway, I wanted you to be aware of that. And what I want to do now as I close is, in a, just a couple minutes, sum up those 20 <laughs> arguments. Um, but I'm not going to go through them all. But this is from the book Confident Faith. And I just thought it might be helpful. I do have this up here for a reason. Um, to draw this picture... And when I have time to go into it, I explain each of these arguments. But what I show in that book, and when I have time to really give the talk, is there's reasons that point a certain direction. And when you look at a bunch of these reasons, they form what I call, and what apologists call, a cumulative case for the Christian faith. Or what a lawyer might call the preponderance of the evidence points to the truth of what we believe as Christians. And I really believe that based on many years of, of study. And so these 
arrows of truth in, involve the fact that design in the universe points to some kind of a very intelligent designer. And I mentioned that earlier. And the fact that fine-tuning in the universe, the fact that the universe is exactly the way it needed to be against all odds to support life. How did that happen? Well, I think it's an argument for an intelligent fine-tuner. Uh, another one I talk about is the fact that DNA con contains incredible information in every cell of our body. And, and there's different genetic codes in every living being. But get, get this, the genetic code, the information in every cell of your body is, the way it's been described by Francis Collins, the head of the Human Genome Project, a three billion letter long text message. Three billion letters long. Written, as he says it, in a strange and cryptographic four letter code. And if you read it out loud, what's in one cell of your body, it would take you 31 years to read it if you go day and night without bathroom breaks. Where did that information come from? Well, that's strong evidence that there's a divine encoder that put that information there. Another one is the one I mentioned earlier, the Kalam cosmological argument. That's, you know, the whole thing about whatever has a beginning has a cause, the universe had a beginning. Therefore, the universe has a cause that is not part of the universe, but is probably spiritual, eternal, and all the things I talked about earlier. Uh, much like what the Bible describes as God. Uh, there's the moral law. The fact that we all have a sense of right and wrong points to a moral lawgiver. And then you get into historical reasons. And I, I won't go into all of them, but the fact that uh, the Bible is confirmed by outside historical evidence, by uh, Roman, Greek, Jewish historians, confirm many of the broad facts of the Scripture. The fact that it's backed up by archaeology. Um, and over and over they dig up things that prove what, you know, I, I heard about recently. A bulldozer was in Jerusalem. They were building a water park, and the bulldozer, one of those little ones, fell through the floor, or like through the ground, fell down one story. Guy wasn't hurt, but now you got to call time out, call in the archaeologist, oh no, what did, you know, so much for a water park. Uh, what did he fall into? He fell into the grave, the burial area of Caiaphas, the high priest that tried Jesus. That's just one example of thousands of examples that point from archaeology to the truth of what we believe. And so you've got that kind of evidence. You've got evidence of Jesus doing miracles in front of skeptics. And they wouldn't even deny they were miracles. You know, you healed the guy. They'd just try to catch him on a technicality. You did it on the wrong day, Jesus. Like, okay, but you just admitted I did a miracle. And Jesus did those all the time. Uh, you have the fact that Jesus lived a sinless life. Even his enemies could not find a flaw in him. Um, you have the fact that Jesus, here's a big arrow. This is the one that convinced Lee Strobel. The fact that he said, you know, I'll, I'll prove that I am who I claim to be with one big proof. You kill me and I'll rise from the dead three days later. Good Friday happened and three days later it was Easter. And Jesus rose from the dead. This has convinced many skeptics. And then you have things like the changed lives of, of skeptics at that time. How do you explain Saul becoming Paul? The greatest persecutor of the church is on the way to Damascus, has this appearance, becomes a Christian, becomes the greatest missionary of the church. How do you explain that? Probably the way Paul did. He saw Jesus, the risen Jesus. 
Um, you have modern skeptics who look into it, like Lee Strobel, like Josh McDowell, like Simon Greenleaf, and all these other people who they look into it and they say, the evidence adds up. I, the way Lee Strobel summed it up, he said, after two years of research of not wanting it to be true, I reached a point where I realized it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than it would to become a Christian. Uh, you have the changed lives of the people in this room and millions of Christians around the world. Um, just goes on and on. I, I list 20 of these things. And I finally say, okay, this is not absolute proof. But it's pretty doggone strong evidence. And my argument is, on this cumulative case, my argument is, I think the truth is somewhere in here. Now, I, I believe in tolerance, I believe in civil rights, I believe in religious freedoms, and if you choose to believe something out here, I will support your right. That's part of what I love about our nation, and I think we need to fight to maintain the right for people to believe whatever they want to, even if we think they're wrong. But in the discourse of talking about what we believe, I want to know their reasons and talk about them, and if they want to believe this, they ought to have some good reasons, and they ought to be able to refute ours. And I say good luck to that. Because I'm telling you the evidence points in here. And the last thing I want to say is, what does that evidence point to? Well, some people say, God's existence. And I say, well, that's true. It, it does point to that, but it points to a lot more. We're talking about a resurrected Savior. Talking about a sin, sinless Savior. It points to a lot more. And ultimately, I think all of this information... And all good apologetics, I think, ultimately points to the fact that there is a God who loved us enough to come down and become one of us, and then to stretch out his arms and die for us. And the point I want you to get more than anything else tonight, more than any other answer or thing we've talked about, is that Jesus loves you. And that there's a Savior who's dying to bring you into heaven. He already did. And he rose to give you new life. And the, the bottom line end thing I want to say is it's not enough to just nod your head and go, I, I agree with that. You need to receive him. I mentioned I'm flying home tomorrow. It's not enough for me to just to believe airplanes fly. You know, I can go up to India and sit in the terminal and watch airplanes take off all day and all week and all month, and I'll never get home unless I climb on board one. Faith is more than believing airplanes fly. Faith is getting on an airplane. And if you want to be in Christ and you want the benefits and you know, the relationship and the love we've been talking about tonight, you need to do more than nod your head and say, I believe Jesus died. I believe he's the savior of the world. You need to make him your savior. Amen. You need to climb on board with Christ and say, forgive my sins. Be my leader. I want to follow you. I want to be a disciple. I want to be baptized as your follower. Take me, God. And that's where, the, really, the, I'll tell you what, that's where the adventure begins. I did that when I was 19 years old. And I tell you what, life's never been more exciting. It's not without pain and without problems but it's the best way to live, I'll tell you. So I just want to urge you, if you don't know him yet, climb on board with Christ. This is the way to go, I'm telling you. And if you've already done that, share this truth with your friends.
Because God wants to use you to spread his good news and bring other people into the family. So I'm done. I don't know if Tom, you, you coming up? All right. God bless everyone. Well, Mark, I sure appreciate you coming. Uh, tell your family, will you thank you for loaning uh, uh, you to us for this uh, weekend? Uh, I know that's hard for them, for you to be away. So give them our appreciation for you being here. And uh, he's headed out to the table out there, so he'll be out there for uh, books and, and every kind of good thing. Um, I've, got, I've got one more question, Mark, if you don't mind just hanging out. Um, I don't know if you know this guy or not. His name is Lee Strobel. Um, he has been watching our live feed. At, no, no, I'm not, I'm not kidding. And he has a question for you. Um, so we're, we're praying that Lee will come to Christ. And so it's, there's a lot that is writing on, on your answer here. Uh, his question is, uh, do you think that God still performs miracles today? <laughs> this is a setup, I'm telling you. <laughs> Um, I absolutely do. And in fact, we talked about miracles with Muslims uh, experiencing uh, dreams and visions. And the guy who wrote the book I mentioned, Tom Doyle, wrote a book called Dreams and Visions. And he just by coincidence happens to be one of the people Lee Strobel interviewed for his brand new book that is coming out uh, called The Case for Miracles. Uh, Lee is using you to sell one of his new books. Is that, is that what is happening I, I here? I pretty much think that's true. Okay. Um, we really do need to pray for him. That's, yeah, but, no. <laughs> but honestly, uh, I, you know, I always tell people this. I, I write books and they're pretty good. The best books you can read are Lee's. And The Case for Christ is tremendous. And I've read this new one called The Case for Miracles. And uh, whether he's listening or not, I would say this. Uh, it's a phenomenal book. And it'll, it'll really heighten your awareness of how God is working in the world, not just back 2,000 years ago, but how he's working today. And I'm also checking, and he may want me to mention this, but we're actually doing a simulcast on The Case for Miracles coming up in March. Uh, March 14. So whether, I don't know if that's something you might want to consider here. Yeah. It's a free simulcast. It's something you can show in your church or if you're from other churches or even small groups. You can do this in your home and it's a free event. But I'm going to be there with Lee. We're going to be in Nashville and we're going to talk about the case for miracles. And I think he's, I might even interview a woman who had amazing healings and things happen in her life that are happening now, not just, like I say, back in biblical times. So ask him if I said what he wanted me to say there. We'll, we'll confirm. <laughs> Thank <right>. you. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. That, that, that word free really is enticing too. So we'll check into that simulcast. Uh, for those of you who've been watching online, we're really, really grateful that you tuned in far. And I love the questions you ask. And highly, we're grateful that you tuned in as, as well. Thank you all for being here uh, this evening. Just a couple closing things about what you can do next. If you are a part of those who are here tonight that you consider yourself somewhere between zero and four, and you're interested in maybe checking out a spiritual discovery group. Now, can I tell you this? For the last several months, I've been involved with a spiritual discovery group. It's been one of the most exciting things that I've done in, in ministry for a long time. I have learned so much just from the exchange of ideas and thoughts and questions and discuss. 
It's an awesome thing. So if, if you're interested in that, uh, just down this long hallway on the right is our fireside room. We would like for you to stop by for just a few minutes, get some information uh, on, on how you could take advantage of being a part of a spiritual discovery group. They also have some refreshments in there as well. So that's, that's what we would like for you to do for just a few minutes this evening. If you're already a Christian and you just want to keep growing in your knowledge on this, how to um, present the evidence for your faith to those who are asking you questions. Because I know sometimes when people ask tough questions, we want to have good answers. And we don't want to give a bad answer, because I, I agree. Uh, the, the, the worst thing we can do is give an answer that is flippant or shallow or just not worthy uh, of, of the question that has been asked us. There are a lot of resources. Uh, check out uh, Mark's books out there. They are awesome. Our bookstore uh, has all kinds of resources as well. We'll do our best to help answer questions around here uh, also. So if you have kids that are being taken care of by our Child care ministry this evening, would you, as soon as we're dismissed, go there? Because they were, are winding up about 8 o'clock. So you got about 10 minutes to get your kids before they're sold. And, um, <laughs> and, and, and you do want to keep these people happy because they'll be taking care of your kids the next time as well. Would you stand with me? I'm going to have a word of closing prayer. And then thanks again for coming and being a special part of tonight. Lord, we are grateful uh, for the evening. Thank you. Uh, for Mark being with us, uh, for his transparency, for his willingness to be here to answer questions, to point us to the evidence that, well, gives us a reason to believe. So, Father, help us in our faith to continue to grow and to know why we believe what we believe so that we'll be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks. Dismiss us tonight, Lord, with your blessing to make a genuine difference in this world. In Christ we pray. Amen. Good night, everybody. Thank you for coming.